Welcome to In the Deep. I'm your host, Katherine Ingram. Once again, we have remastered uh, the sound of a recording from many years ago, as I'm between homes and won't be recording live sessions for a few more months. However, the archived recordings of these sessions, though they are from long ago, are pertinent to our time and perhaps to any time. The following session was recorded more than 19 years ago in April of 2003 in Santa Monica, California. The U.S. had just invaded Iraq, and yet another mass slaughter based on false premises was underway. This podcast is called The Strength to Love. Shakespeare wrote, To thine own self be true, and it must follow as the night the day. Thou canst not then be false to any man. To thine own self be true. So simple. And then it becomes impossible to compromise. And you live in dignity, no matter what it seemingly costs. Because the cost of not living in dignity, not living in integrity, is higher, is way higher. I am amazed, I am astounded at what people will compromise for money or for power or for whatever it is they're after. I'm amazed that people continually tell us lies in the media, for example, to protect their jobs that range from $2 million a year to whatever, $50,000 a year. And the people who are making $2 million a year, they've got tons of money. They have millions and millions of dollars, but they won't tell the truth because they don't want to jeopardize that money. And we all know the ways that we get tempted in compromises each day ourselves. But just look at what the cost of that is. Look at what the cost is and what the world now is paying the price for. So much compromise, so much. We have strayed so far from the truth. Masses and masses of people are being just spoon-fed information, and they're compromised because, in general, there's a kind of apathy that has set in, a comfort level, a kind of don't bother me with the details. And we're in for a big awakening in this country and in the world. We're in for a big, rude awakening because of all of this compromise, and we've all, in some part, colluded because we've wanted to be comfortable. So I've been thinking and reading a lot of Gandhi and Martin Luther King lately, and just thinking about the example of their lives, and how it was so clear for Martin Luther King Jr. that he was going to die for speaking his truth. He knew it. His, the whole last part of his life, he was basically talking about it. 
Every time he gave a speech, he kind of mentioned it. (laughs) And the week before he died, he gave a speech at his own congregation with the phrase, if you would eulogize me, he kept saying it all through the speech. He basically gave them the blueprint for his own eulogy. And he said, if you would eulogize me, don't say that I was a famous speaker, say that I was a a man who loved humanity, and so on. Because he was true to himself. He couldn't compromise, even though his life was on the line. Now, for most of us, for most of us, we can live in our deep integrity and live true to ourselves without at this point anyway, putting our lives on the line. And it is incumbent upon us now to do that, to really live in the truth of your, your deepest, sweetest nature, your most loving self, your most dignified self, your most honest, genuine self. Not compromise it. Speak the truth that is necessary when it's time to speak it. And know that the the cost of not doing that is much more expensive. You know, sometimes you think about someone like Dr. King or Gandhi, and you might have the thought, he was a brave man. But actually, they had no other choice. It's just what Aung San Suu Kyi says, the Burmese Nobel Peace Laureate, who's been living under house arrest for many, many years in Burma. She often says, well, she has no other choice. From one vantage point, it looks like courage. From another vantage point, it's completely choiceless because the alternative is worse. The alternative to not being deeply true, deeply honest, And what is this honesty? You know, it's like I said last night, it's the strength of love. It's the strength of love. It's being willing to live in that power in yourself. Whatever it takes, whatever it means, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you think you're going to lose as a consequence. Because... It is its own reward. It trumps everything else. So these these issues are on my mind a lot these days. We've had such a luxurious time for decades of peace and prosperity. And the ability to really pursue the Dharma and just really enjoy the deep silence of beingness. Fantastic luxury in this world. But now I'm just called to speak about these other aspects, these awakened qualities that come from this realization, and demand a kind of showing up and a a strength to love.
I'm sorry I wasn't here last night, but the last thing you said about the strength to love, and I've kind of been thinking like the strength to love what and the strength to love everything and Yes. Some things seem difficult to love. I mean, yes. you've often, well, I've heard you speak about bearing witness, yes. but maybe you could, could you speak a little bit more about that? Yes. Um, bearing witness is a bearing witness with love in one's heart. And sometimes you're looking at something very horrible. So it's, that's where, where the strength has to come from or the, the wherewithal to keep looking and keep bearing as much as you can. You know, you don't have to be unrealistic about it. There may be times when it's time to rest and look away. But, you know, as a parent would sit by the bedside of a sick child where the vision of what you're looking at, you know, or say even a dying child, even worse, far worse, that what you're looking at is so beyond horrible and so heartbreaking, and at the same time, it is calling on all the reserves of love that you have, and you have to do it. You have to be there and do it. And that's the same way that I see what is going on in this world right now, is that it's calling on all the reserves of, of love and of keeping on saying, okay, this too, this too, and yes to this too. Here it is. And that doesn't mean one doesn't work to, to stop the horror. But it's, it's to do all of your actions, you know, give it all over to God. And I'm, I don't mean a personal God or anything like that, but just give it all of your action in, just is given over in service to the greater good constantly. And that requires love. Serving the greater good is not done from hate. Hatred is coming from such a small, tiny little pinpoint of a contracted sense of self. And it's like a little tiny scream inside going, me, right, me, 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 like a little scared rabbit heart. That's where hate comes from. And it's, sad. I mean, it's tragic. It can do a lot of damage, though. So to, to be faced with the, the bursts of hate that trigger each other in such dangerous ways, I mean, we are living in a time where war is not tenable. You know, it's not tenable. <laughs> The weapons are too, too far gone, too, too destructive. It's just not tenable. And the amount of hate that's roiling around and that is justifying this and making this somehow okay in people's minds is astonishing. And it can only be pulled off because people are asleep and they're just being drip-fed little tiny bits of information without a lot of of perspective. So to, you know, to be able to hold this gross injustice, this terrible potential catastrophe, and the 
ongoing catastrophe that's that's occurring with or without the war is very, very demanding for all of us, for all everyone I know. It's demanding. It's really challenging to stay in, in peace and in kindness and in love and in total truth to yourself and your own integrity. At whatever the cost. But it's the only choice. <laughs> so as challenging as it is, just like the parent sitting by the sick child's bed or the dying child's bed, there's no, no option but to be there and to bear witness with love in your heart. That's the only, only thing you can do. Now, some of us may be called to other action, and great. Not everyone will be, and that's also fine. Some some people's job is to tend the home fire, to make the soup and have it there ready. And it's also important to realize that wakefulness involves the understanding of total empathy, that there's an, there's an empathic reality whereby you're feeling, you're feeling the circumstances for all the other beings. So the true spiritual life is not some kind of transcended, dreamy thing floating off in the clouds, thinking about how to make me feel better. The truly awakened life is very, very attentive and willing to bear witness. There's no separation. No separation at all. It's actually, as, as many of you have heard me say, it's not a bliss trip being wakeful. <laughs> I mean, it has, it has aspects because the wakefulness is so intense that the joys you feel are more intense than ever. But you also feel the sorrow more intensely. And your, your heart, your poor heart, is having to hold all of this more intensely than ever. You have no more numbing and buffering and, and stories and philosophies that get you off the hook. You're just there with it. Wakefulness is actually the being there with it all, <laughs> with, you know, stripped bare. Like looking at something under a spotlight. And so joy is, is of course, intensified, and, and so, is, so is difficulty and, and sorrow. And it takes, it takes something very strong to bear that. Not everyone is able to. Not everyone is called to that. So often people come to the Dharma, you know, for all kinds of reasons. But as it starts to seep into your being, as the realization, as the recognitions become stronger and stronger, (laughs) and you realize what you're in for, (laughs) you might have second thoughts (laughs) about it. Too late, I know. <laughs> it's true. 
I just wanted to digress a little bit from the world situation and pinpoint what you were talking about, being true to yourself. Yeah. And at what point does being true to yourself and be and having the view of the greatest good for all balance each other out? Because sometimes, say in family situations or work situations, you know, you have a very strong view and it may not be the greatest good for everyone. Or how do you, like, what's the dividing line? Or how do you judge, you know, do you understand what I mean? Yeah. The thing is, in considering the greatest good, you also have yourself included. But you're not, you're not getting a sort of bigger role than anyone else. You understand? So if there's four people, you, you have a one-fourth? Yes. Basically, you, yes. Or there's ten people, you yes. one-tenth of the consideration? I mean, it's not that quite that formulaic. Someone I know was <laughs> proposing a, a scenario, a philosophical scenario, about, you know, if you had a situation where you had like a hundred monkeys and the Dalai Lama on a boat and the boat was going to sink... <laughs> And you could either save the hundred monkeys or you could save the Dalai Lama. You'd save the Dalai Lama from his point of view <laughs> because it's the great, it's, it would serve the greater good, right? It's not just coming down to one man versus a hundred monkeys. You know, it's, it's, also, it's way more than that. You might have even thrown in the hundred people. <laughs> um, because of that person's weight in the world in terms of the good that's being spread as a result. So there's, there's that to consider as well. But it just, sometimes I feel like, for example, when you direct a movie, you know, you're the boss and yeah. you have to have a, a bird's eye perspective of yes, what's yes, best yes, because definitely. you have a view of where everybody's going and maybe not everybody involved has the same perspective. So you, you have to hold that perspective. Definitely. So in personal situations or in less clearly cut work situations, how do you know that your one-sixth <laughs> share is holding that bird's-eye view that maybe the five-sixths don't have? Do you know what I'm saying? I, mean, I do. And again, as your own habit of non, not just non-identification, that's not quite right, but not putting that sense of me first, which is so the habit for so many people, right? It's kind of all about me for many people. That's their primary focus. I often talk about it as a movie that people have in their mind running called The Universe Starring Me, right? That's the movie most people are running, The Universe Starring Me, right? And when that movie is not running and it's simply the universe and you're one of the characters out of the billions in it, which is a more realistic picture, then this, this facility of knowing what is the greatest good and including the character of me, it, it just comes much more effortlessly 
because you're you're no you're no longer waiting. There's no longer this gigantic weight of influence about me and my needs and what I want. And if I don't get it, I'm going to be you know so mad. <laughs> and when that tyranny of thought is released in this kind of relaxation into beingness where you feel very whole and very full and very easy and your your wants and your desires and your needs while they might still trickle through they're no longer the end all be all of your day and if most of them you don't get it's fine okay so suppose you've processed a more democratic view yes. of beingness and you are, are giving weight or trying to look at what the greatest good is and you still find a situation say untenable then what do you do then do you i mean say you don't want something to be a certain way but you're being de- as democratic as you think you can be and you're not running that me 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 i mean what if well, you truly have a different viewpoint that is opposed to what you think is the greatest good? In other words, how do you, I guess what I'm trying to ask is, how do I'm you speaking, that? when I'm saying that you're offering all your acts for the greatest good, it doesn't mean you get to control anything beyond that. You only get to control what you're offering to the mix. It may not turn out, it may not turn out like you would like it to turn out, but your offering is given freely. It often doesn't turn out like one wants it to turn out, or one, it doesn't turn out necessarily as, as what one sees as the highest good. But your offering and your intention can always be that. You understand? So you just do your best. You just offer up your best, and then you don't worry about it. And you offer up your best from this perspective that I'm speaking about, where you're just another character on the stage... And it's not the universe starring me. It's just the universe. And then you will become much more like the director you you mentioned. You'll just be scanning when there's activity needed. You'll scan for what is the greatest thing for all. Thank you. It becomes the habit. It becomes the habit. And it's also like, a, again, to use the parenting role, you know, like a mother who has a bunch of kids. And there's just a tracking of the needs and the hierarchy of needs. I'm speaking about a kind of awakened mother. <laughs> Not all mothers are like that. But. You know, I, I do know some who are very awakened and who do kind of run the scene with just the greatest good is always, always operative. And usually the mother's the most self-sacrificing in the mix, sometimes putting herself too low on the scale of importance. But those are all balances that can be worked with. Sometimes in this habit that I'm speaking about, you can forget to put yourself in the mix and consider your own needs. <laughs> but then you can feel it being out of balance and and then the adjustment can happen and the adjustment can happen very quickly and easily 
Hi. Hi. Happy to see you. You too. I had an experience last week I wanted to share and um, and talk about. Um, I was working on a job, <clears throat> a freelance job, and um, you know, speaking about you know the microcosm of the macrocosm, what we're talking about. Um, my own personal experience of these feelings, and there was a woman who was in charge of me, <laughs> and um, she, I, we didn't get along, and I felt a lot of hate, the little rabbit heart, mm-hmm. and anger, and, and I felt like it was an opportunity for me to be able to be more loving. Yes. And I tried, and I, I wanted to, but just there was something about us that we just didn't get along. We just, you know, yeah. you can this feel it. a chemical mix. It yeah. could be. Who knows? Yeah. Maybe, you know, subconsciously we saw things in each other that reminded us of each other. Who knows? I'm, I'm trying not to go there. Yeah. But anyway, I might be seeing her again because I might be working with her again. And I want to do it differently. But I still don't want to deny that these feelings and be true to myself and not try to dance around and make anybody like me because Mm -hmm. I don't really care if she likes me or not. Mm -hmm. But I still have this energy with her that I want to, um, I I don't know how I I want to ask you. I mean, Mm -hmm. what can I do? Well, what's coming through is is my own little personal trick (laughs) in situations like that where there's there's a personality clash. It's like on the level of personality, it's just not a fit. You know, it's like two different elements that are explosive when together, like gasoline and fire. You just don't put them together unless you want a big explosion, you know. So one of the things that happens for me is a kind of depersonalizing of the personality. And, you know, just as, you know, if you went to someone's house, let's say, and they have a dog that's a really aggressive, misbehaving kind of dog. You know, it's just difficult to be around. You don't hate the dog. I mean, you really, you know, you just keep clear of it as much as you can. You don't really feel hatred for the dog. And in a similar way, you know, so many people are carrying so much burden and, and torment and story. And, and some, of it, some of them just are genetically burdened. You know, they come in like that. Sometimes one kid out of six in a family is a really difficult, tormented person, and the rest are all happy and fine. Same parents, same place, the whole thing. So, you know, you have to just really take step back and see that this person is just grew this way, you know. <laughs> and, and it's also fair to as much as you can, keep clear. You don't have to be interacting with with difficult people if you don't have to. Or just to to whatever degree you you can keep clear, then feel free to keep clear. I guess I have a part of my personality that wants to be more loving and wants to be more compassionate. And I I can feel these things, and I'm, I'm trying not to push them away. I'm trying to love this within myself as well. Yes. And that's beautiful to have that intention and it's also fair to not push it beyond your capacity whereby you're just triggering a lot of anger and hatred in yourself so that you be as kind as you can and take as much break as you as you you know i've often felt that that all of us 
meeting together are actually chemical mixes. So with some people, you're together and you're like water into water. You're just, you're just merged and you just, there's, there's no edge to it. And with other people, the distance is more like this. You know, you kind of, you dance around like this and it's better that you don't get too close. And with other people, it's like a galaxy. (laughs) (laughs) But everybody's included. I mean, everyone gets to be in the neighborhood, in the the universe. (laughs) And to really honor, to really honor that. Because there are personalities. There are personalities. Again, you know, not to get into this sort of spiritual up-leveling thing where you think loving everyone means you have to be at the effect of everybody and be able to take it without a reaction. It's just not realistic. It's not how we're made. Some people are less reactive. Some people just are less judgmental. But it doesn't mean that if if those kinds of reactions are arising in you, that there's something wrong with you. I'm not seeing it like that. Yeah. um, Part of, I mean, there's a part of me that wants to teach her a lesson. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, you I have want to, to show watch her. that one. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> I'm just being honest. And, yeah, and no self be true. I mean, there's, I, I have visions of like going up to her and, and telling her off. And, you know, and then, and then there's another side of me that just sees her as somebody who's really hurt and in a lot of pain. Yes. You know? And again, what is the greater good? If you really felt there was a moment, an opening, an opportunity in which to speak and that she was inviting it. Mm then those words might be possible. But it doesn't sound, from what you're describing, like that's the kind of relationship you have. So then you'd have to really say, is it going to do any good whatsoever to put this woman in her place? Sometimes it does. Sometimes it's true that you can say, here's what this behavior, here's the effect it's had on me. I just want you to know. There are times... You know, once in a while where that invitation is there and it takes somebody who's pretty big to hear it, pretty big and pretty great largesse of heart to hear that kind of criticism. But if you think that it's just going to add to the explosion, then it's only going to hurt you. It's going to come back on you. I just feel like it's taking up too much headspace, you know, yeah, and I don't know that yes. I don't really want to give it that much more energy. You yeah, know? exactly. So. Yeah, that's that's what I'm saying too. Right. Is that then you'd be left with reverberations and anger and I should have said it this way and you know and so on. I was also looking at it like um a small part of what we're talking about tonight. You know, my own what's happening within me right. on the and not in like a ego way, but I just mean in a small part of what's yes. happening in the big part of the world. Another aspect of being true to yourself sometimes is walking away from a situation like that. Not having to announce it and shout it to the world, but just go away from it. This is not this circumstance, this person's presence is not good for me. And as a gift to myself and as a lessening of this tension, I'll take myself out of this predicament. And that's another way of being true to yourself without, you know, having to necessarily explicitly make everyone know why you're walking away. Sometimes silence and a withdrawal from a circumstance is speaking loud and clear. It speaks volumes. 
And often it's astonishing how, how specifically that message can get through. You know, haven't you had the case perhaps where, I don't know, you maybe had some interaction with someone and they withdrew. They just weren't available to you anymore. And didn't you sort of know exactly why? Yeah. Even though they didn't say. I was left of my own. Yeah. Yeah. I did have that experience where I did walk away and I felt better. Yeah. And that's how I feel sometimes with what's happening in the world is I don't watch the news. Yes. I don't get fed yes. the drip, you know, yes, you were yes, talking about. Yes. And that I'm okay with that. Yeah. I want to live in in a peaceful place. And but I still there's a, still a part of me that's like, well, I should be informed or you know. You're being informed though. I mean, it, what I'm speaking about is not is not, I don't mean to imply that everyone should be watching the news, but I mean we are being informed. The whole world is informed about this. You know, you can't you know you can't be you'd have to be in a cave somewhere in the Himalayas to not be informed about this. I was just in Australia last month. I was in a place called Byron Bay, and you couldn't get international news there. There was, there was, I went to every single newsstand in in the entire town. And yet I heard about everything happening. I got all the news, it turned out, just by osmosis, all the big stuff. (laughs) Thank you. You're welcome. One of the aspects I have of uh, dealing with telling my own truth or being honest is sometimes being very alone or only with it and I've been wrestling with this and it somehow has to do with some sense of living in a very hostile environment or feeling like my views are treated in a hostile way in the place you live well some of my views are contrary to the prevalent seemingly prevalent views politically particularly Mm -hmm. And yet I want to engage people on these issues. And what seems to be coming is there's some matter of engaging people on some common level, some common ground. And that's rather intriguing me. How does one find out at what point we can meet, so to say? Well... Again, we're back to the, the perspective of beyond the personality, beyond the opinions, beyond all of that, there's just this, this purity of beingness. And you can always, in any pair of eyes you're looking at, you can be looking at that. That's what you can be looking at. It's just beingness. And you start losing the fixation on things such as personality, nationality, or color, or anything like that. That's not what you're looking at. You're connecting with beingness. You know, I... (laughs) Many years ago, I was at a, at a luncheon in San Francisco, and there were about 40 people there to have lunch with the Dalai Lama. And before the luncheon, we were in this other meeting room, this greeting room. And we were kind of circumambulating 
around the Dalai Lama, not formally, but people were just kind of moving around and, and saying hello to him. And my friend and I, who were there together, met the Dalai Lama. I had met him a number of times, but my friend had never met him. And, and you know, the Dalai Lama looked in his eyes and shook his hand and just really was completely present with him, a thousand percent. But a little bit later... It happened again that the Dalai Lama did it with him again. <laughs> I mean, within about five minutes, you know, or ten minutes. And my friend turned to me and he said, you know, it's funny, but I had the feeling that second time that he didn't remember <laughs> that we had just done that the first time. And I said, he probably didn't because he wasn't looking at you, the person. He wasn't registering necessarily the contours of a face and of a look. He was looking at something else. I mean, he, that's how he looks at it. There's an incredible picture of him with a penguin at a zoo, and he's looking at the penguin exactly like he looks at the rest of us. <laughs> so that's another possibility. Just seeing beingness, beingness, beingness. Now, having said that, Sometimes in interacting with beingness, the personalities are just clashing. And so you give it, a, give it some space. But you can still see the beingness shining through that, just as you would with the dog that's being difficult. You still see the presence. And people love to be seen that way. It's so interesting to me at the lengths we all go to, to try to be seen somehow for all these other lesser important things. You know, as a woman, I'm, I'm often kind of amused, really, by how, when I was younger, I would, I would go to great lengths to look a certain way, and then people would relate to me based on how I looked, the way that I made myself look. But it would feel very unsatisfying because I was being related to from a much more superficial place. <laughs> and it's amazing how one, you know, one creates that circumstance and then is left with the, <laughs> with the effect of it. So then the other possibility is to be, you know, seen as presence and to look through eyes that are seeing that. And then you have the intimacy you were craving when you were trying so hard before dressing up the monkey. <laughs> I understand what you're saying. Yes. I, to me, it's almost like looking through or past the static. There's exactly. a lot of hash in the way. It's all the thoughts that get in the way. Definitely. You know, I, I when I used to... Uh, be involved in Buddhist meditation. We had a center in, in Massachusetts, and uh, it is a pretty famous Buddhist center. And and lots of the great Buddhist masters would would come there to visit. And now and again, two of them would overlap at the same time. So a, a world famous Zen master and a world famous Tibetan Lama would be there. And I actually tell this story in my book. And and you know we would the you know the young Dharma seeker types would be all kind of clustered around, wanting to hear their conversation, wanting to hear what it is they rap about, you know, <laughs> and, 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 and hoping that, you know, they'd get into a debate and they'd be... 
they debate Dhamma points, you know, and there are different traditions. And, and um, you know, so we'd be all clamoring around. And they'd be sitting there and they'd be saying, yeah, isn't it a lovely day? Isn't it a lovely day? Yes, yes, it's, it snowed a lot today. Yes, it is. <laughs> It was always that, you know, and then there'd be these long silences where they were just <laughs> hanging around. <laughs> people who are used to just hanging out in presence, people who are used to just seeing presence, they're not, they don't care about anything special being manifested. And that's another great thing to understand is how you don't have to manifest anything special. You just have to let your beingness breathe, you know. And people love that. People love, people love having you around. <laughs> it's, it's interesting. <laughs> You're not constantly battering people with your way of seeing things. Yes. But that in your own heart or soul or whatever you want to, however you want to think of it, there's an alignment of integrity that your actions are commensurate with your own deep knowing of what's right in your heart. It's very simple. Yeah, I'm thinking sometimes that the, the knowingness is almost like a not knowing sometimes. Yeah, well, mostly. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, when you speak of love, it's like, a, like love without an object, right? Just It's love. Yes. Well, it just like comes over me so much just gratitude. I'm so grateful, you know, and like I love you dearly, but am I grateful to you? Am I grateful to Papaji? Am I grateful to Ramana? It's like I don't know where to place the gratitude. So I'm wondering if gratitude is the same thing as love with no object. <laughs> yes, I think so. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, you've probably heard me tell this story, but for those who haven't, when I first met Punjaji, after the first week of being with him, there was no more teaching that I needed from him. It was done. It was clear as a bell. And yet I stayed on just to be in his company, his fabulous company. And then I went back a second time, again, just to hang out, just to celebrate, not to get teachings, but to, just to drench further and that's what I feel like we do here as well. It's just a kind of soaking. It's not that we're getting that much information. But the next time I went, it was because I had this overwhelming sense of gratitude. And I, for the first time in my life, I wanted to prostrate at someone's feet. I wanted to just prostrate at his feet and thank him, which is really kind of part of his culture. It's not necessarily part of our culture, but it is an expression of gratitude in his culture. And I'd never done that. I, I, I'd seen other people do it, but it was, I didn't want to do it. And suddenly this urge came over me, and I went all the way to India. And I, I, I also had the sense that this might be the last 
time I saw him, which turned out to be true, um, the last trip. And I couldn't wait to get from the train station. I was afraid he was going to die before I could prostrate at his feet. And I got there, and I just, as soon as I saw him, I just did, did that. And I'm sure it was very surprising because <laughs> I'd not behaved like that before. And, um, and I could feel as I was doing it that it was completely empty on both of our parts, that it was not about him and it wasn't about me, that it just had to be done, that this expression of gratitude had to just be done and once it was done, it was not, it was so not personal. It was just some, it was like a, a, an expression of the universe that was just happening in time and space. And, and when I got up, I thought, okay, I can go home now. <laughs> but even as he, as I, I was so aware of him as this was happening, because it was just sort of like no one home. There was just no one taking, uh, taking delivery of the package. <laughs> yeah. It's beautiful. I started reading your wonderful book this morning. and uh, You talk about adjusting to aloneness, and I, I see that as very much the process that's taking place right now. Yes, and, and it's, as I said in the book, it's a majestic aloneness. It's not a small, scared aloneness, but a majestic aloneness that just simply recognizes the understanding of aloneness in this case is the recognition that your, your movement through life is completely unique totally unique. You can't explain it to anyone. You can't even explain it to you. That's a <laughs> Yeah. But I mean, you are a mystery to yourself. And you know yourself pretty well. But even so, this, this what we call life, this, this presence, this unfolding, all of it is such a mystery. And because of the uniqueness of each of our lives and the taste of life itself being so specific to each one, there's an aloneness in that. And the recognition of it is, as Pundaji said, a path so narrow that two cannot walk abreast. Two don't go abreast on the recognition. You know, you taste this and you understand it and you imbibe it and you live it discreetly. We were talking last night and that whole story came up about, you know, me not being able to connect with people. And that's, uh, that's been a very deeply held, uh, almost a cellular, you know, story. So when I came to this understanding, I found myself coming, I had been, my, my quest had been for personal contact. So I found that I was coming here, you know, looking for something that isn't here. <laughs> <laughs> that was really great to understand. Finally, it took about four years. But yeah. <laughs> thankfully, I had the time. Yes. <clears throat> beautiful. That's that's a beautiful realization, though. It really is a deep realization, in fact. 
And once you really do recognize that, and you're living in that, there's a, there's such a freedom when you're not coming to something like this with that kind of need, with that kind of... And then you can really celebrate the presence of Sangha. You can really enjoy the company of Sangha. But you're, you're not here with hunger in your eyes. This, this is truly beginning of my life. Yes, beautiful. What you suggest we do to like, I don't know, like there's no instruction. Like uh, I come from meditative Buddhist background. In which tradition? Vipassana, uh-huh. mostly. Mm-hmm. From a center in Massachusetts. I don't know if it's oh, the same one. It is the same one. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm used to being told, okay, this, this is what you do, and then do this. And, right. Um, but then the answer just came, relax into presence. So I don't know, I can get that for moments, but I want to quest. You want to quest? Yeah. Uh-huh. Or I guess that, yeah, it's a habit. It is, yes. It's a habit. <clears throat> yes. So, I mean, I don't know. You just hung out with, like, a realized being and then you just got it? What happened, you know, people have often asked what happened mm-hmm. when you met your teacher. What, what specifically actually happened? Mm-hmm. And over the years, I've realized I've distilled it to what happened, mm-hmm. which was the quest fell away. Mm-hmm. That's what happened when I met him. There was no more seeking. It wasn't like I, there was some big answer that landed on me. The seeking fell away. I saw how ridiculous it was. and there's an ongoing deepening ever since it's not like you land on some big platform of enlightenment and there you are for the rest of your days but there's this ongoing deepening process that life just provides just living provides but the idea of that that i'm questing for something something spiritual or something enhanced or anything like that, is gone. Just totally gone. So is it effortless? It is. Completely effortless. That part of my life that I had spent so much time on, in fact, in the book, I have an allegory that runs through the book. It's a little story that is a thread that goes all the way through each chapter, and it just begins each chapter. And it starts with the end of the quest. It starts with a character, and she's extremely exhausted. She's very, very, very tired. But she's thinking to herself, she has to continue the quest, because the quest is important, and the quest is all there is. And that was true for me. It was like I was on a spiritual quest, and I had forgotten even what it was about. I mean, it had been going on for decades. <laughs> and I kind of lost track of even what the goals were supposed to be, because they had receded so far <laughs> into the distance and future. <laughs> and, and there was like a deep weariness of soul, a deep weariness of my spirit that was ready for it to fall away. 
And in this allegory, this young woman, she sees an old woman. She's about to fall asleep near, near a river. She's in total exhaustion. And as she's about to fall asleep, an old woman silently gestures to her like this, as though she's saying, just this. And the woman falls asleep. The questing woman falls asleep. She's all battered and bruised, too, by the way, from her quest. <laughs> and there's a line about her. <laughs> she's, she's fallen down a thicket. And, and then the line is, her, her daring leaps of former times, now too difficult to execute. Because she just can't, you know, she doesn't have the, the strength and the enthusiasm for the quest anymore. So now it's getting harder and harder. So she falls asleep. And when she wakes up, everything is different. Everything is different. And she wakes up into a reality where the stars are just shining points inside of her own vast sense of herself. Is that what your awareness is? It was when I, when I, that week with Puntaji, that first week, that's how it felt. And it, it was almost too much after a week or so. It was, it was getting to be too much. <laughs> but, um, and, and now and again, the, those kinds of things blaze through. But mostly it's very um, calm and quiet. So I don't know what to tell you other than this. It falls away. And hearing these words may be, you know, yet another chink on the, <laughs> on the falling away of it. Thanks. Because what, what you were after all along is right here. And, you know, you've heard these words, you've heard them, and they sounded good. They still sound good. It's right here. There's nothing you need to do or add or change. Your own shining awareness is effortlessly occurring. You didn't grow it or anything. It's here. And you just find yourself just falling into it more and more deeply. You're just really deeply relaxing, almost like sinking down into the cells of your beingness. And and no, no squirming. No thinking there's something out there in the future, over there. And see, the interesting thing is that the goals of meditation practice are exactly that. But it's right here. So if you start with the recognition, if you really get the recognition, then you're no longer practicing for something in the future. You're sitting as a Buddha every time you sit down. And you're walking as a Buddha as well. Thank you. This has been In the Deep. You can find the entire list of In the Deep podcasts at katherineingram.com or on iTunes, Spotify, and other platforms. We'd be very grateful for a review, and we're also very grateful for any donations. You can help us out in either of these ways or both. In the U.S., the donations are tax-deductible. And lastly, I wanted to remind our friends in the Victoria area that we're having Dharma Dialogues on the Mornington Peninsula on the last Sundays of October and November of 2022. Till next time.